It's interesting, we, we, we come to the end of the book of James, and James does what preachers often do. I think James is probably the New Testament's best example of a sermon manuscript. It sounds very much like one of the prophet's sermons. James is a very prophetic preacher, and, and uh, this was definitely, it was a letter, it was sent out, but it's sent from a preacher, and it sounds more like a preacher than a letter, like a lot of Paul's letters definitely read and sound, and they're structured like a letter. James, not so much. And James does what preachers do. Preachers do. He gets sort of to the end, or you hope it's at the end, and he says, finally. Now, Paul does that too. Paul says, finally. You think, okay, he's wrapping up, and he's only halfway through his letter. You say, well, that's like a lot of preachers I know. Well, well when, when James does that, he, he says, above all, or finally. These are his last words. Most importantly, it's like what? Did what, he, what you said prior to this not matter? Well, no, but, but last words are important, are they? aren't they? One of the things I often, I often will talk with, talk with people with when I'm visiting them, and, and uh, they know and I know that they don't have a whole lot of time left around family and friends here, that, that sooner rather than later they're going to be in the presence of the Lord. One of the things I love the opportunity to talk about is, is well, first of all, what's ahead? What's ahead? Oh, my Imagine I share that, and I, I, I share what I know about a little bit about that, but they're about to be there. They're about to experience it. But the other thing that I like to talk about is there, is there something you'd like me to say to folks for you? Last words. Wow. You have, you've been in that situation with somebody, maybe. Maybe somebody that was going away, and you weren't going to see them for a long time, or maybe it was a, a family member you knew. This was your last real conversation with, those last words, those last charge, it's important, it's huge. In fact, to the church, Jesus' last words, go, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them, make disciples. That last admonition, that last charge has has been meant to characterize the nature of the church for 2,000 years since. Last words matter. Everything else that he said and taught us roll up into that. And James is doing some of that here. As we wrap up uh, um, this series we've been doing through the summer in the book of James, we're coming to James' last words, and he says three things. And it could have been, I could have summarized this very, very easily. I could have said, don't swear, pray more, tell somebody. I could have done it as easy as that. I could have said, said don't swear, pray more, save somebody. That would have kind of got the nutshell of it, but the first one still would have thrown you a little bit. So let's jump in. I, wanna, I want us to look at these three admonitions, and I think the three of them go together. And what I would encourage you to do, even, even as I start now, what I'd encourage you to do is be ready in your minds, be thinking back in the book of James. What has he said before that, that, that actually he's summarized? He's not just saying, okay, oh, that other stuff was good, but this is what's best. No, he's gathering up what he said before, and all of that is included in these final three sort of exhortations or commands. So you may want to then take these three in mind as you read through the book of James this next week one more time, okay? So let's begin. Let's just pick it up, first of all, in James chapter 5 and verse 12. But above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear... Oh, moms and dads, you've been telling your kids that in a long time, right? Ah, but it's not what you think. Do not swear or vow. 
Don't make a, a vow that's either by heaven or by earth. I vow or I swear or I affirm by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall into condemnation. See, James is not talking here about using bad words. Now, that's important. You want to teach your kids that too. But what he's talking about here is not having to say special words of an oath or a vow so that what you're saying this time can be believed. Actually, there's an interesting Jewish background here in this first admonition, and that was, there was a, there, it was forbidden in the law of Moses that you take the Lord's name in vain, that you, you bring the Lord's name, God's name, into, I swear by the Lord himself that what I'm saying is true, and then you don't do it. And you have brought God in as your witness, and you do not fulfill your vow, and you will be judged for that. And so they came up with a, a secondary rule. Okay, that's what the law says, so this is what we're going to do. Anytime somebody swears by the Lord, boy, he, he better not even do that, because if for some reason he's not able to keep the vow, he's going to be condemned. But God didn't say that about swearing by other things. So swearing by other things and not keeping it is okay. So people could make these big oaths and these affirmations and they could, they could insist vehemently and strongly and, and bring uh, by the earth itself, as long as the earth shall stand, then I will keep this promise that I've... And yet you and I have no power over how long the earth will stand. And because that vow was not a vow that was in the name of the Lord, this secondary rabbinical law said that didn't have to be enforced. That's odd. So you could make a vow and it sounded really, really good and yet there was no legal teeth behind it at all. There was no accountability whatsoever. And that was common practice. So people would say things very strongly and yet very meaninglessly. And Jesus comes along and says, don't make any vows like that. Be different than the society around you. Just let your yes simply be yes and your no simply be no. And the passage is not meant to say, well, when you, if you're ever called as a witness in a court of law, make a big deal about not saying an, an, an oath or a promise to, to, to tell the truth. That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is let your yes count. Let your no count. Be known as somebody who speaks truth. You and I need to be known for truth because, because our Lord is truth. We have been entrusted with God's own truth that we would tell to others. And so we, we ought to be people that can be counted on. As I was telling the children, we don't want to be known for crying wolf. Well, I can believe him some of the time, but I can't believe him other times. Sometimes he just says the weirdest, crazy stuff. We need to be careful what we send along on Facebook, huh? I'd be, I'd, be, I'd be careful about what kind of crazy stories we send along only to find later, oh, I guess really that wasn't so true after all. Because some people think our faith is, is like a crazy internet story. I mean, think about it. The God who created everything actually himself stepped into humanity. He, he limited himself. He took upon himself humanity. And then as fully human, he dies a real death in our place. It's an infinite death because he's God himself in the flesh in order to take our guilt upon himself that he would die for us, that we could escape judgment for our own guilt and be forgiven because he's paid the price for us. He has paid the debt in full. It's a wonderful story and yet hard to believe. 
It sounds, it's, it, it sounds too much to be true. How can this be? So be careful of the other stuff that we might be trafficking in that sounds urgent and sounds compelling, and yet it's nowhere near like this. We need to be known. We need to be known as people who will tell the truth, who can be known for truth in a culture that shades truth, that looks for loopholes, that looks for, if I word this just right, then I have, a, I, I have an escape clause out of it. Jesus says, tell the truth and do it plainly. Swearing is only necessary when the truth is not reverence. To make an oath of affirming that this is absolutely true is only necessary if truth is not valued and people habitually lie. And we're, we do live in a culture, we live, we live in an age where that's often expected. In our leadership, we, it, it's often expected that the truth will be shaded. But for us, we need to be known, first of all, for truth. A consistent Sincerity. I was reminded of Shakespeare. The, uh, out of the play Hamlet, the lady doth protest too much, methinks. Now, you know, when you hear that line, um, thou dost protest too much, you're thinking that somebody is denying, 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 and they're denying too much that uh, maybe they did do it. Well, that's kind of close, but the word protest in, in Old English means actually to affirm. It's like taking a vow. It's like, and, and in, in Hamlet's play, the queen in the play is, is swearing to her dying husband, the king, that she would never marry anybody else. Only him. Her heart is his always, even though he's about to die. And yet as soon as he dies and, uh, and uh, his brother takes the throne, guess who the queen marries? Yeah, her, strong, her, her strong affirmations that she was only ever going to be married to him and how strongly she makes them is where the line comes out. The lady, the queen, doth protest too much, methinks. We don't want to be like Hamlet's mother, the queen, who will protest much, who will affirm much, and yet perform little. We're in a culture that affirms much. We're in a we're in a culture that promises everything and delivers very little. We want to be known for truth. His first is very practical, and it seems kind of unrelated to the other two, but I think as you see as we go, we're going to, I'm going to try to tie those together. But let me move to the second one, because the second one's the big one of this section. And I could have titled it simply Pray More, but I think fill that out a little bit. Pray for one another. Along with a consistent sincerity, there is a humble spirituality. That the essence of our spirituality, that which takes this real life and, and, and focuses it toward heaven, more than anything else, is prayer. You know, we can get together, we can share our troubles, and uh, you wives understand this. You, we get together, we share our troubles, and then somebody in the group starts solving them, Right? Try to figure out an answer. You know, I'm a, I'm a problem solver. I like to work a problem. I like to think of solutions. Well, what if we went around and did it this way? And, and well, many problems are not for me to solve. The, the trouble is, some of those problems that aren't for me to solve are the kind of problems that I think I can solve. But prayer is a humbling thing. Prayer is an acknowledgement that I can't do this, or I can't do this the way that it needs to be done. I can't change this in the way that it needs to be changed. It needs to, and I can't make it happen the way that it needs to happen. God needs to intervene here. I need God to work. There are certain things I should do for myself. 
I don't pray to God for somebody to come and brush my teeth. You'll be glad to hear I do that myself. Right? Aren't you glad to hear that? I knew you would be. But even the things that I'm involved in are the kinds of things that if God doesn't work, here you are this morning and you came, I, I, I hope you came anticipating to hear a word from God this morning. You came hoping that your soul would be stirred in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a sharper awareness of the presence of God. Behold our God seated on the throne and you wanted to hear from him. And I can't make that happen. I can't. Hopefully, I've done my work. I, I, I've been in his word, and I've been in, in this word prayerfully so that God will use me. But for God to speak to us himself from his word is a God thing that we can't fake. Prayer is a, is, a, is a humble spirituality. Now, let me read this in the next section, verses 13 to 18. If anyone among you is suffering... Let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Elijah, give an example, was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. For three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. A few comments on, the, on, the, on, the, on this section. First of all, there are the rhythms of life here. In this room this morning, there are some who are cheerful. There are some who are rejoicing. There are some who are troubled by certain troubles or problems or pressures. There are, there are some who are well. There are some who are sick. There are some that you have close to you who are sick or who are close to you who are in trouble. And their trouble becomes your trouble because you care for them. So there's a whole range of the rhythm, the light. There are some who are rejoicing in victory. That they, in their walk with the Lord, they've experienced victory. They have, they have brought temptations before the Lord and the Lord has delivered them and they are kind of on a mountaintop. And there are others who have stumbled. And said, how can the Lord be glad to see me this morning? All of those rhythms of life are included here in James' admonition. These words are not for some of us. These words are not for those who have measured up. These words are part of the normal rhythm of the Christian life of broken people in a broken world. All right? So first of all, there's a normal rhythm of life here, and we meet one another all the time on all of these places. And he says, in the midst of this, he says, if anyone among you sick, let him call to the elders of the church. The elders are God's God-ordained shepherds. And notice it says elders, not elder. This is one of the places where we understand from the Bible that there should be a plurality of elders within a local church. A plurality of leadership, not just one leader who, makes all, who calls all the shots. One of the reasons for that, frankly, is care of the body. That we are supposed to be calling on our leaders to pray for us, and, and one person cannot do all of that. So there's a plurality meeting needs within the community, that God works through community. He says, call the elders and let them pray. Well, golly, I can pray just as well, can I? Can I just call my friend and have my friend pray for me? And that, that's, I mean, what's one difference in one person praying? You know, he's going to tell us here in just a little bit, pray for one another. 
So those who would call the elders should also be ones who pray for the elders. We pray for one another. You see, it goes both directions. So it's not a matter of only some people in the church can pray and the rest of you are, are relieved of that responsibility. That's not what he's saying here. But again, there's something, well, why do then I have, is there something magical about the elders? No. Is there something magical about anointing with oil? And, and, and we could get into the weeds on that discussion. Well, oil was actually, anointing with oil was actually had a, had, had a medicinal purpose. Yes, it certainly did. Remember the guy on the, uh, on the road to Jericho who the robbers got and the, and the Samaritan comes along and one of the things he does, what? He anoints his wounds with oil. Certainly. Is that what's, well, that was wounds, not sick. So it's hard to make an exact corollary. And we don't need to go into the weeds. We can actually take this fairly straightforward and simply. You're sick? Well, call a doctor. Oh, I, I'm a doctor, but I'm not going to diagnose. I'm not going to give you medical advice. Uh, I might help you sort through options if you want me to, but uh, I'll try not to problem solve. What, what, what you want me and our other elders to do is to pray and ask God to intervene, and ask God to direct, and, and God direct through these processes, God direct through the provision of the health care that I have, but God, would you intervene even and make that, that stuff not necessary? Yeah, we'll do that, and we've seen that. So call for the elders just because God's word says to, not because the elders are magical and are just much better prayers than anybody else. The same thing with this whole anointing with oil thing. It used to be that kind of in more conservative churches, that was kind of a charismatic thing. We didn't get into that oil. It's kind of messy. But James simply says, we'll do that. Well, okay, we will do that. We'll do that. Why? Because it, one thing it is, it's a tangible expression of our faith in the Lord. There's a rich biblical heritage of oil being used in the anointing of oil representing the presence of the Holy Spirit in the midst of this mess. And one of the things we want when we pray, Lord, by your spirit, would you, would you strengthen? Would you courage? Would you heal this person? And so the oil is just a, a tangible reminder of that prayer and God's presence. And so we'll do those little things, kind of like this, this table. There's bread, there's a cup. These are tangible reminders that God has given us over 2,000 years of his body given for us, of his blood poured out for us. It's not that there's something magical here in these elements. But this is what God has told us to do. And so we do it. And so in one, in one essence, there's something about a simplicity of faith that simply takes God at his word and does it. Okay. So prayer will save the sick. Does that mean that if somebody is sick, it's because they have sinned? That uh, if he sinned, he will be healed and, and his sins will be forgiven? Sickness is not necessarily because of sin. Interesting, in verse 15, look at verse 15 again, the second half of the verse. This is just good to be reminded of as well. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. If he has. That if he has, it's called the second class conditional. It doesn't assume that he has sin. It's maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. James just reminded us in verse 11 of this passage of Job. Remember Job's comforter? Oh, you know why you're sick, Job. You know why you've got these boils, Job. It's because you've got some things that we don't know about, but God knows about. Well, there were some things that they didn't know about that God knew about, but they didn't have anything to do with Job except Job's up, upstanding character. So it wasn't because of Job's sin that he was suffering. And James would not have forgotten that here and assume that people are sick because they have sinned. But you know the lovely thing about being sick? Oh, this is worth coming. 
You say, there's something lovely about being sick. Yes, there is. The wonderful thing about being sick is, is, it, is it reminds you. It doesn't create because it was already there, but it reminds you of your helpless dependency. One of the things that happens when I'm sick is I'm reminded again how wonderful Julie is. And, and how, as she patiently cares for me, and I'm not, a, I'm not an easy sick person, and as she patiently cares for me, that I'm reminded of how sweet and wonderful and giving she is. But when I am weak, that's when I'm reminded of my dependency on others at a personal level and my dependency upon God at a spiritual level. I can't keep myself. I might not even be able, with, if, if I'm too sick, the family will tell you about the time I, I fainted in the hallway. I might not even be able to get myself to the bathroom. So I'm reminded, though, that I'm dependent on others, and I'm reminded that I'm dependent upon God. So what sickness can do for you? Because we wonder, why is God doing this? And that invites a bit of introspection. We don't know. That's what's going on with Job. Job is, is looking at himself. And he's, he's looking. Is there something with me? God, show me then what it is. Bring your accusation before me. Job is, is certainly introspective. And through it all, what does God do? The one thing God does for Job is God gives him an even greater perspective of who God is in the whole thing. The lovely thing about being sick is it invites an introspection. Is there any wicked way in me, Lord, and lead me in your everlasting way? Oh, we don't like being weak. We don't like being feeble. But that's what it can do for us. And so then to invite others in, and maybe there is something, maybe there's not. And if there is, well, confess that to the Lord, and that's the time to, to, to receive his forgiveness again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What John will say in, the next, in, in a book, a few books later, is what James is saying here. So we pray for one another. Elders for us, us for elders. And God does his work in response to prayer. And he, he gives Elijah as an example. How many of you considered that Elijah was a lot like you? Have you, have you compared yourself to Elijah lately? Have you ever, you know, kind of sat down with your friend over a cup of coffee? You know, I've been thinking, I'm actually a lot like Elijah. And then after a few eye rolls, or maybe they spit the coffee out, and he's like, what in the world are you talking about? Well, the example that he gives and how he unpacks it convinces me of this. Elijah, as, as great as he was in Jewish tradition, there was, there was no prophet bigger than Elijah in Jewish tradition. So that they expect that, that it's Moses and Elijah who are going to come back, and Elijah himself is going to come back, and he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And so John the Baptist comes looking a lot like Elijah. But, but that was the Jewish idea. There's nobody bigger than Elijah. How could you say that we're like Elijah? How can we be compared to Elijah? How can Elijah be like us in this? The wonderful things that Elijah accomplishes. Elijah accomplishes through what? Prayer. Now, I'm not asking you to call down a drought. And I'm certainly not asking you to call down rain. We get plenty of that, thank you. Like a nice sunny afternoon, but rain to come if you're really into praying for the weather. But the things that Elijah does, and what James says about Elijah is that Elijah prayed and this didn't happen. And Elijah prayed and this did happen. Elijah, as great as he is, you know what makes Elijah great? It's Elijah was a man of prayer. That's what we learn from Elijah. The thing about prayer is 
And, and it bothers me sometimes that we, we consider prayer as its own mechanical magic. If I pray, then God will do. And God doesn't work unless we pray. I'm conscious about that. And yet God invites us to pray. And God commands us to pray. And yet God works. What is prayer about then? There was a great, in a, in a, in a missionary prayer letter that somebody forwarded to me this last week, I came across a great line that I wanted to share with you. I put it in your notes, and I'm going to read it. He asked, what is prayer? Prayer isn't persuading, informing, or advising God. He already knows. Prayer is an exercise in divine alignment. Not that God is out of alignment. Our prayers must be aligned with His eternal Word, His sovereign ways, and His holy character. The more deeply we understand God's Word, His ways, His character, the more effective our prayers will become. The more we will pray in His name according to His character. The Holy Spirit is the one who aids us in our praying and who aligns our prayers with the word, the will, and the character of God, says Steve Lyons. That aligning of ourselves to God, coming nearer to God in prayer, not merely by the words, but as we, as we speak in prayer, that our heart may, is, is, is adjusted and aligned closer to the heart of God. And what is the heart of God especially? That's where James goes next. Be known for truth, a consistent sincerity. Pray for one another, a humble spirituality. And those two both go together toward what is our goal, where James' last words line up with Jesus' last words. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now he's speaking to the wanderer, one who wanders from the truth. And this wandering from the truth can be a departure from the faith concerning Jesus. Who is Jesus and what has he done? Or wandering from the truth could be, well, yeah, I believe that stuff, but I'm just not living in it at all. So for James, it's hard to separate what you believe from what you do, right? James says what we believe is seen in what we do. So this passage can refer both to a departure from orthodox faith and a departure from walking in the truth. Either one is wandering. And if anyone among you wanders, brothers or sisters, James says, someone who brings him back, this is what you're doing. This is big. This is huge. That bringing a sinner back from his wandering saves their soul from death and covers a multitude of sins. Saves the soul from death. Now in the Psalms, that phrase, to save one's soul from death, refers to the physical calamities, the troubles, and the consequences that can come upon us because of our sinful ways. So it could be merely that. But it also could be that spiritual death of eternal separation from God. That if we go after somebody who's wandering somebody who's wandering from the truth. They've departed from faith in Jesus. Says, I don't really believe that anymore. But because you're known for truth, and in the midst of or through a, a, a relationship of humble spirituality, you go after that one and bring them back Bring them back to the, to the truth. Bring them back to walking in the truth and thus in fellowship with God. You are blessing them in, in, in eternal ways that nothing else could do for them.
what, we, what we've best been given to do, what is the heart of God himself but to seek the lost? Ezekiel describes it this way, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered. Remember Jesus' parables of the lost sheep, the lost coins, and the lost sons. And the rejoicing in heaven that occurs when one who was lost has been found. That's the heart of God. That's why Jesus came. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And that's what he's given to us. That's what he's given to us. And he's, he's, not, he's given us, get that to us for one another. Remember the plea that I made earlier in the service? And I said, get involved in children's ministry. Let's start young. Get involved in those areas that you think somebody else is doing that or somebody else could do that better. Get involved. Give yourself tender hearts that are, that are willing to be turned toward the Savior. And you can have a part in that. And things God shows you there about sharing your faith with somebody else, with kids who will just be straight out with you. If, you're, if they're interested, if you've got them, if you've convinced them, or if you have not, that'll help you as you seek to do the same thing with others that you care about. Why are we having this, why are we having this, this workshop about how can I live out my faith and share my faith with those that God has put me around? Because there's no greater privilege that we've been given than to represent Christ to the people around us. That's why we're here. Go, Jesus says. Make disciples out there. Make disciples by, by baptizing them, seeing them come to faith in Christ. And teaching them the things of faith in Christ. And how, I can't do that. But would God use me to help somebody else take that next step toward faith in Christ? The place I can start with that is, is pray, Lord, like Paul did. Paul comes to realize who Jesus is. And his prayer is very simple. It's in incredibly earnest because he has met the Lord in his glory on the road to Damascus and once he, was, once he could see and now he's blind. Kind of turned amazing grace on its head there. And he knows this is real and his, question, his prayer is very brief. It's this, Lord, what would you have me to do? The Lord would have us, according to James, to be known for truth to pray for one another, to live in and live out a humble spirituality. And the best way that we can represent truth to people around us is with a humble spirituality that doesn't look down at them or doesn't shout at them from across the street, that comes near and says, let me show you the Savior that I've also found. To bring someone who's wandering back home forever. Forever.